You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since 1977. Everybody, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Uh, we are back, Sammy and Todd. I don't know why, but the uh, Lorenzo Lamas roast beef line there made me laugh that time. But I've listened, I've heard, I've heard it a thousand times. I don't know why it made me laugh that time. But it did. Every time in my head, I always say, "Yes, you can." Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is just uh, still one of my favorite lines of all time. And you know, it's just, uh, it's uh, great. Go back and listen to the uh, Body Rock review uh, <laughs> to hear me giggle more about it. <laughs> um just a lot of fun. Uh this week we are doing uh Footprints on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh directed by Luigi Bazzoni. Uh Bazzoni. Nineteen seventy five. Bazzoni definitely sounds like something you would eat. Yes. Right? And I am very hungry right yeah. now. Can I have some so. Bazzoni with a little bit of clam sauce? Eh, clams no. no Pesto okay. maybe. Yeah, either way. Marinara, pasta, fettuccine, bada bada. Bada bing, is that what they say? Uh, fungal. <laughs> and we're doing the Frighteners from 1996, directed by one Peter Jackson. I've little, heard of him. Little Kiwi action. So, yeah. Did the Frighteners? It's the Frighteners. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get the Frighteners. Yeah. So that'll be uh, interesting to talk about as well. Many horrendous New Zealand, a.k.a. Australian accents coming your way. Yeah. So for our Australian listeners, we apologize. In You're going to be offended. Yeah. So yeah. tune out now. <laughs> yeah. Chances are we will butcher that completely. The chances are high anyway. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, have a high probability of destroying your faith in us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you had it, it's gone or it will be soon. Yeah, if you had so, it before. I don't know. You won't for long. All right, um, let's get into some voicemail here. We got one from Walt the Egg. We're going to play it out here. Let's see what happens again. I don't listen to these, so don't know what Walt's going to be asking. Be kind. Rewind, Walt. We'll see what happens here. Hang on. And uh, we'll uh, 
do this on the fly, which ought to be fun. Uh, at least that's what it's supposed to be. It could be dangerous for us. Like button flies. Yeah, like 501s, that's right. Never wore them. Never wore them either. Button flies seems like too much of a, you know, when you're in an it's, emergency. That's so much effort, it's not even fun. <laughs> yeah. You got to, you know, I'd rather, I'll stick to mode zipper and, and button. Yeah, right. And I'd even then, I'd rather I, get my nuts caught yeah. in metal teeth. Well, I'm middle aged, so with that. The, the probability of me forgetting to zip my fly up is higher and higher as I go along. So. <laughs> yeah, but now I could actually, I have something to actually blame it on. Yeah. I was just saying, I have to mention. Yeah, it's right. I'm, I'm present play. Here we go. Gentlemen, it's Walt. Um, great discussion of Bruce Lee last week. Uh, I've always kind of been a fan of uh, Jim. He certainly had to, uh, had to live in uh, Bruce Lee's shadow. Uh, my question this week, it's a bit of a thinker, as a warning. Um, what film, perhaps not representative of a great director, would you nonetheless uh, champion? Um, call it one of the lesser-known films, or a film that's not necessarily representative of the director. Perhaps, for example, you think that uh, The Trouble with Harry is one of Hitchcock's best films. Uh, my own example, I happen to think that... Uh, the Straight Story is uh, one of David Lynch's best films. Obviously, it's not going to be uh, uh, less. Thanks, guys. Look forward to it. All right. So I'd imagine that question probably stems from our David Cronenberg discussion as well, right? Because that film stands out in his uh, filmography as a bit of an odd one. Right. So again, we've uh, put the challenge to ourselves because we didn't... Uh, Challenge. We didn't uh, do any homework before we start this there conversation. Is no prep on this. I'm <laughs> fucked. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. You know, I think <sighs> I can tell you one that immediately comes to mind that I thought that I wouldn't, and uh, that would be Scorsese's Age of Innocence, which hmm. he actually has two. That one and Kundun are two films that to me. Do not scream Marty Scorsese. Right, right. And yet, I, f- I was kind of riveted by both. Um, and they really kind of stand out. Um, so some filmmakers can do it. I'm trying to think of somebody else, maybe, um, like a cult filmmaker where something stands out. But it's really tough off the top of my head. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's possible. It's totally possible to come up with one. I'm going to go with The Fisher King, which I actually rewatched uh, this week. Wow. Um, That's one you revisit often, isn't it? I do, it, because it, it's for me, it's not only one of the best, or at least my favorite films of the 90s, uh, it's easily, in Gilliam's, uh, well, in my opinion, Gilliam's, it's easily his best, or at least top two. Uh, and it's a movie that, you know really straddles the line for Gilliam in that it takes a lot of his uh, his visual style, uh, but at the same time, it has so much heart, and it's so um, it's so uh, it's deeply prob- felt. Yeah, it's probably his most optimistic movie, actually. Uh, it is that, and you know, you know I, I mean, clearly, I think he, he really, really, really brought his A-plus game uh, to this thing, and I think that between him and uh, you know Richard Lagravenis's 
um, fantastic screenplay. And there's there's outstanding performances across the board in this thing. Uh, and this is just, I mean, it's it's one of those really rare, um, uh, magical films uh, that just, you know, for me that that strips away my cynicism, loaded with like my inner uh, hopeless romantic every time that I watch it. Um, and uh, it, it's really, you know, when people say Gilliam, they don't think of this. They think of Brazil. Uh, they think of Twelve Monkeys. Um, they think of uh, you know his work with uh, Monty Python. Uh, but Fisher King is easily, I think, uh, his best, in, or at least in my opinion. And, and you know, uh, it's it's difficult to get me to mist up uh, in a movie, but this one does tend to do it multiple times. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and, and like I said, I, I did rewatch it this week, so uh, I will have a little bit to to add on to that. But I would I would put that one up there. Uh, the other one that you know. Uh, that that immediately springs to mind would I mean like I said it would be a uh, big trouble in Little China because it's not really it doesn't really feel like a John Carpenter movie but it really is a John Carpenter movie because it has all of his uh, in, in enthusiasms yeah uh, as uh, Al Capone in The Untouchables would say <laughs> maybe the single most influential film for a whole generation of film buffs is The Big Trouble in Little China Uh yeah. Yeah, I mean, as and I, I, I get that these two are kind of like, these are kind of middle of the road picks, but it's uh, no, a difficult question. It is a difficult question, but I think it's a good question because, uh, you know, I think it kind of goes back to our fast company talk and and filmmakers sure. trying to figure out what they you know want to be. Uh, right. The truth is, Hollywood pigeonholes filmmakers. Right. Uh, once they have a hit, they tend to milk them for that hit over and over and over again. And I'm not trying to be cynical about it. That's just the truth. It's a business, first and foremost, whether we like it or not. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you come along and you uh, rattle the cage as this, uh, let's say, Michael Bay, then they're going to want Michael Bay movies. They're not going to want, because if a Michael Bay movie's a hit, they're going to want a Michael Bay movie. And that's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's interesting when filmmakers do step outside of their comfort zone i you know walt's pick of the straight story is very interesting that is the most uh probably digestible david lynch film well i would i would put out elephant man first but. yeah well both of those actually it's interesting but the interesting thing about straight story is it's actually something he wanted to do uh right. well I, I shouldn't say that because he did want to do the elephant man he we'll talk about this uh next week more but um because we actually are going to be talking about a david lynch film but I think it's interesting that uh, that uh, these filmmakers, you know, they they I think they try to work in the system, and I think some manage to figure out a way to do it. Martin Scorsese again is a good uh, good uh, per, uh, person to bring up here. He somehow has managed to survive in the system, mm-hmm. but you know, there's very few filmmakers like him. Even Brian De Palma, you know, Brian De Palma's not been able to survive in the system. He still gets to make movies. But he makes most of his well, movies overseas because I mean that's largely because you know his his particular style just went completely out of favor in the mid to late nineties. True, there's that too. It, it wasn't just Bonfire of the Vanities, no. despite you know the the, the no. opinions to the contrary. It is not just that. No, definitely not that because I think he made very. I, I'm not going to say great films, but he made very solid films after that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's uh he's made a couple of interesting things. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's just 
filmmaking it's an int- I think about this all the time because when there was when I was younger I really wanted to be a filmmaker but there's this constant push and pull and this constant I think back and forth you have to have between the financing of a movie mm-hmm. and a vision of a movie and some directors have it and the ability to cope mm-hmm. uh and some directors never have it never have it oh i have a, i have a perfect answer yeah. uh army of shadows oh that's a good one yeah there you go john pierre melville mm-hmm. completely not what uh what he's known for but at the same time it is you know a tremendous movie yeah yeah it is I even you know I think about Spielberg and I think about Sugarland Express, which is such sure, a sure that Schindler's List uh, from Spielberg. Yeah. yeah, that's a very uns- completely not what you think of when you think of Spielberg. No, and yet it's a fantastic film. Yeah, proof that he can make great movies outside of Spielberg Absolutely, movies, sure. right? So, well, if he wanted to, yeah. If yeah. They, well, if he would be allowed to, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so many filmmakers they they get a chance to, and uh, some of them succeed and some of them fail. It's just the way it is. Anyway. Uh, great question, Walt, as always. Walt the Egg, yeah. put the questions. Hey, Walt, I got a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> I got a question for everybody out there, actually. Okay, so let's say, just to, to see if I could generate a little bit of a, a feedback here. So if you had 24 hours to live, what movie do you watch? One movie, only one. Wow. The other, 20, the other 22 or 21 hours, let's say, you have already occupied with whatever, you've so let's say okay. Let's say you have two hours to live. What movie do you watch? It's <laughs> a good question, right? It's you can question. only do one. We'll period. See. We'll see if anybody comes back with any answers for that. Uh, they're not gonna. Well, they yeah, will. they might. I'm sure yeah, Walt will. Oh, I'm sure Walt will. Yeah, yeah I hope so. Walt's the the good egg, as you could. He is the good egg, and he's a he's a good dude. The incredible edible egg. Remember those commercials? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, showed my age. I do love eggs. Uh, oh, yeah, right. A nice egg salad Especially sandwich. Especially when they're on a McMuffin. Oh, I love them any which way but loose. Well, I uh, was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> I will take an egg any which way you can, sir. Every which way but loose. Maybe. <laughs> I, I mixed up both film titles there with any which way That's but loose. Right. Um, okay, let's get into what we've been watching a little bit, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, cool. Uh, so yeah, I'm just going to jump off because I, you know, like I said, I did watch rewatch the Fisher King. Um, and you know, I, I really do. I, I recognize the flaws in this thing. Uh, but I'm extraordinarily enthusiastic to forgive them, uh, because I totally get, and I buy into, uh, what Gilliam's selling here. And I wish that there really was, uh, more of this out there. Um, but I also don't because, you know, that would kind of rob this thing of some of its magic, I think, in a way. Mm. Uh, and, you know, this time around when I watched it, I, I really, really appreciated much, much more uh, absolutely everything that Mercedes Ruel is uh, bringing to this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I totally believe that uh, her Oscar win for this is 100% deserved. Yeah. I fell in love, uh, with, I fell in love with her during that movie. Yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. I was, I was, I'm watching her. I was just marveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, in her performance, I mean, she, she's—oh uh, my God, yeah. she's completely capturing your your attention every time she's on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie, you know, it's it's really raw uh, and it's really magical at the same time. And truly, I feel uh, this thing really kind of speaks to uh, to kind of well, not kind of. Uh, it speaks to the uh, the human condition 
which, you know, I, I mean, is, is what uh, draws us to movies in the first place. Um, and then just as a, a quick aside, and we've talked about this um, off and on over the past uh, few weeks, uh, Jeff Bridges is really a horrible on-screen smoker. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so I got to throw that out there because I mean we talk about it, so I got to put it out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean this is I I I am absolutely in love with this movie. Have been forever. Uh, I I don't see that diminishing diminishing uh, anytime soon. Um, it's just uh, it is just about everything to me, and especially in the '90s, which were so devoid of uh, of things of interest for me in a lot of ways. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, I, is this where you bring up a Mandarin collars again? Uh, let's not do that. <laughs> really, let's not do that. Uh, so uh, I think Will liked the Mandarin collars, though. So. Um, I don't know if he actually liked them, but he I'm likes. Throw it out there just to get a reaction. Hey, he well, likes. He likes to bring them up. Collars. You yeah, yeah. love them. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if there's any photos of him with Mandarin collars. If there are, I'm sure he would post them. Fired. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I moved on from that to a rewatch of uh, Scream for Help uh, from 1984, directed by Michael Winner. Uh, and this one is just a really surprisingly grungy, surprisingly fun little uh, thriller. Um, you know. One of the most interesting things I think with this film is that the the way that it treats uh, the lead teenager played by Rachel Kelly, I believe, uh, especially when it comes to like her her sexuality and the level of violence uh, that uh, is turned against her, and you know the, this really odd sort of intertwining of sex and violence in regards to her that Winner kind of puts into the movie. It's really kind of queasy uh in a lot of ways and, yeah. you know i kind of love uh the weird suburban tranquility uh that all of this stuff is kind of happening behind uh, it's just kind of fascinating in a way yeah. uh and you know it, i think that if you think that the uh, the teenagers in this are just a bag of dicks um every single adult is about a million times worse yeah uh so there's really just kind of no no character that you like actually like in this movie with the exception of uh, the Rachel Kelly character. But at the same time, she's just kind of like this whiny little brat in a lot of ways. Uh, but I, I mean, at the same time, this thing is, is a, it's a humdinger in uh, this one. And it, it has a really truly terrific dummy death uh, that will just <laughs> absolutely make your jaw drop when you see it. Uh, so, I mean, just for that alone, for that like 10 seconds of, of film alone, um, he liked dummy. He liked dummy discs, Michael Winter. Yeah, he did. And man, I'll tell you what. I think there's few filmmakers that uh, that really kind of that really kind of uh, lived up to that one. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, like you know at once Death Wish hit. I don't think Michael Winter gave a shit what anybody thought yeah, about he really anything he did. did. <laughs> he really didn't. <laughs> he just like, yeah, uh, fuck you. Yeah. Matter of fact, it's almost passive aggressive, or maybe not even passive aggressive. It's almost aggressive behavior toward critics. It's very strange. It's very strange the way well, he... I, 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 that almost kind of attracts me more to him. Yeah. Just this kind of just brazen yeah, resilience he's... against anything that a critic would actually find mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. appealing. Just to be like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. He was I'm here go... to put asses in seats. I like putting asses in mm -hmm. seats. This is going to put asses in seats. If you don't like it, eat my ass. 
Uh, and that's pretty much the Michael Winner fucking attitude, or at least the one that I've picked up on. I think that's the name of his uh, biography, actually. Was eat my ass? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's going to be mine, and I don't even like that kind of thing. Ugh, bag of pennies, my fuck. Get the fuck out of here, you fucking. What the fuck? Anywho. <laughs> So oh boy, went down a dark road very quickly. That went, that went, yeah, that got on real fast. So, actually, uh, not even a road. I, that was more like a tunnel. If you know what I'm saying. Speaking of creamy things, I watched Hunchback of Soho uh, from 1966, directed by Alfred uh, Wurer. Uh And this one is, I believe, the first creamy that's in full color. Uh, and it, this one, it really kind of seems to take that cue. Uh, to uh, to dig into the, the the much more sensational and sort of uh, more outrageous and nastier aspects uh, of the story, um, or you know, I also kind of thought about it. You know, maybe the color just kind of makes it feel that way, because I mean, the movie it, it opens with a woman in her underwear uh, getting strangled in a phone booth, uh, and you know, much of this movie also kind of feels like a, a very 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 early uh, women in prison film. You know, with the, the the predatory lesbian warden character and all this other stuff going on, um, but you know, we also, you know, I mean, uh, against the women in prison thing, we we do not get the uh, the standard uh, showered scene, uh, or or you know, things along that line. So uh, it's not quite as salacious as it could be. Um, the uh, the titular hunchback uh, of the film. Uh, looks very much like uh, Frank Wolf with the shaved head, um, and I mean overall, I I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed it, um, and I don't know, I I can't quite put my finger on what the the turn was on it that uh, that kind of brought it out in me, but uh, regardless. Uh, and went on from there to Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yay. Um, I myself have never cared for the, uh, the song and dance numbers that the studios really insisted on, on cramming into movies like this. Uh, I mean, I, I get why it was done. Uh, but you know, it, from my perspective, it just, it absolutely bores me to tears. Um, Boris Karloff obviously is, you know, game for everything as he always was. He was, you know, the, the consummate professional, him and Carradine, I think were two of the, the great consummate professionals of, uh, genre, uh, film in general. Uh, and, you know, Karloff, he really does his level best in bringing, uh, some pathos to the, uh, the Jekyll character. Um, and uh, that being said, I've also always kind of took a, a shine to the uh, the Mr. Hyde makeup in this uh, in this particular picture, uh, and I've always thought that that's you know more how he should look, even though you know that would kind of negate part of the uh, the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, story with Hyde being able to you know kind of move around in public and you know interact with uh, actual people and all that sort of thing. But that's not the the interest of this movie at all. Um, but you know, end of the day, I'm a monster kid. This is a cool looking monster, so uh, I'm in. Um, I think that uh, Charles Lamont's direction is okay, uh, but you know, I don't think that you watch films like this for their like a tourist flourishes. Obviously, um, I mean, this is not top tier Abbott and Costello, uh, but I think that it's 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 more or less solid fun. Nothing really legendary. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so there was that. Um, 
outside of that, I did watch the uh, the first episode, new season of uh, Stargirl. Oh, yeah. And I got to say that so far, it has not disappointed at all. Oh, that's good. Uh, there's still a, a heavy focus on character. Uh, still, you know, a lot of really nice uh, dramatic interactions that, you know, feel organic and feel uh, warranted. And, you know, I'm really, really still liking how it goes. I'm, I'm praying to God that it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't go jumping the shark and or forcing horseshit fucking opinions in there, which I will refrain from getting into further. Um, but so far, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really digging it, even though it's only the one episode. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool beans. Good stuff. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I haven't uh, checked it out yet, so I'm glad to hear it's that. It's really good, man. I think, yeah. you'll be, I think you'll be happy with it so yeah. far. I mean, I like the first season as well as you. I think me and I love the first. It was yeah. such a surprise, such a yeah. nice little fucking gem. It really was. I, I expected not to like it. I went into it like, I'm probably not going to be into this. I'll stick around for a couple right. episodes, jump off. But right. I ended up like right. loving all, was 13, 14 episodes of the first season? Yeah. So. Yep. That's the other thing, too. Let's talk about that. That is like, for those type of shows, that's like the perfect amount of episodes per season. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, these uh, the, the, the suits are starting to pick up on that. Yeah. Because I think you're you're seeing a lot more of that happening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of happy for that. But at the same time, I think that they also kind of have to fine tune it because not everything deserves 13 episodes. Yeah. Let's be perfectly yeah, yeah. blunt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some so things. some things really should be only six episodes or even only four episodes. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. the story. The story needs to dictate the length, not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully they're kind of they're starting to pick up on that. And I think that the, I think that with the the rise in people who are actually paying for uh, the services that this stuff is exclusively on, uh, I think that that kind of is going to kind of dictate yeah. um, how they they go about that. I think they're. I I would hope that they're smart enough to actually look at the numbers and be like, oh, so when people tap out after like seven episodes, that means that we should probably stop it at six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they're smart enough to do that. And I mean, yeah. it, it always goes back to my dislike of. Um, decompressed storytelling in uh, in comic books in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, there's so many, so many stories out there uh, now and have been for a while where you're you're going through it and you're like, why am I rereading the same fucking story for four fucking dollars a fucking month when it could easily be done in one fucking issue? Mm-hmm. Easily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's where it comes from, I think. And, yeah. You know, I think that hopefully they're hopefully they're picking up on it. I I would hope that the comic book industry would pick up on it. They're not going to, but uh, because man, you want to talk about fucking you know s- stick in the mud, uh, you're going <laughs> to yeah. be talking about the comic book industry. Yeah, they're in a rut right now. Uh, okay, uh, I watched a few things. Uh, me and my son, we were, uh, rewatched. Um, Treasure, well, I rewatched. He saw it for the first time, but uh, Disney's. Did I talk about this last week? Did I talk about Treasure? You did talk about Treasure Planet. Okay, okay. So, sorry. Moving on from that. Uh, Val. I watched Val, the documentary, Val Kilmer documentary that uh, he directed. Uh, okay. Um, talking about his career, uh, he shot a lot of video. He was one of the first people he knew to have a video camera. So, he shot a lot of video, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, there's some awkward stuff here. Him and John Frankenheimer arguing is, uh, is fun. Um, because they really didn't like each other. Um, it happens. Uh, Val, of course, Val Kilmer had a uh, you know, I, I like him Wait, as an actor. On, was that on Island of Doctor Moreau? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really, oh, okay. they okay. really didn't okay. get along. Uh, but he didn't get along with Richard Stanley either. So I think right. you know what we got to remember here is that Val Kilmer became a very difficult person 
Um, uh, there's obviously some type of psychosis going on there, some type of, uh, you know, deal. And this happens with actors occasionally. Uh, I mean, I'd imagine John Frankenheimer working with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer, that uh, that was probably a thankless task for him. Well, <laughs> right. you also got to think, and I, you know, I, I thought about this a lot. Uh, you know, I, I get that I it's it's in the same way that, okay, when you become a celebrity, there's the trade-off. So now you can't just go eat at a fucking Arby's and yes. not expect people to come up to you. Correct. And be like, you know, but, but that's the trade-off. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It's a nobody you made you, nobody made you yeah. put your fucking ass out there. Yeah. So now when somebody comes up to you and interrupts your, your dinner, you know, it, it's kind of, it, that should, that should be an expectation of the job. Yeah. I'm not saying it's okay, Yeah. but I'm saying it should be an expectation. I'm not saying, but you know, you don't got to be a dick about it. Yeah. No, I totally agree. By that, by that same token, I, I think that, you know, when, when we talk about difficult actors, you really kind of got to take a pause for a second and not just say, well, yeah, he's an actor. Uh, you guys paid millions of dollars, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Right, and I get that too. But you also have to figure out, or you have to kind of consider that there is an enormous amount of power politics going on, on any given film set. Yes. And I think that, you know, you really kind of have to kind of just take a, a, a little bit of a step back and kind of consider that because, as much as the director needs to be in control of the set, by that same token, the actor needs to exercise a certain amount of power in order to be able to justify his salary here, and then if the movie is a success, his salary going forth. So, you know, he he kind of has to, you know, kind of be a little bit of a dick, just in order to be able to make money and continue his career. Yeah. Because otherwise, then he's going to go into you know whatever. He's going to go into free fall, or he's going to wind up in in TV that he doesn't want to be in, or what have you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that that makes it okay. I'm saying that that's the way it is. No, yeah. Um, I think with Val uh, Kilmer, it was more the petulant behavior that was the problem. And that's very, that's very much, yeah, that's very, very, very possible. Yeah. The power play was not geared toward the career. It was geared toward just making people miserable. <laughs> and that's entirely possible, too. Yeah. But, sure. again, I think, you know, uh, like so many people, he lived his life and he looks back on some of it with regret uh, and that he made some mistakes, and uh, he fully admits that in this documentary. Uh, obviously, he's going through uh, throat cancer now. Um, he'll never be the Val Kilmer he once was. His voice is pretty much gone. Um, he's got that uh, thing where he has to put the finger over the breathing tube to uh, to uh, talk, and the voice is completely gone. So, I mean, he's uh, you know he's not he's a changed person. He's never going to be the guy he once was. Sure, uh, but you know. Uh, he, he, you know, he could transfer that in something else. He's a bit of an artist anyway, a bit of a, you know, kind of a freeborn kind of a spirit. And uh, there's some interesting stories here about his youth that I didn't know. So it's definitely worth a watch. It's, it, I got a little emotional in moments, not just because of what he's dealing with, but just the uh, things he's had to deal with, with uh, the way he chose to live his life, kind of how it affected his marriage and how it affected his kids. And, uh, you know, you see kids get involved in that and kids don't have any, they don't have any say, they just got to deal with the problem. So, um, there's interesting things there and stuff. And, um, again, it's like most people, he's lived his life and he can look back on it with some regret and then some pride. And I think that's everybody's life pretty much in a nutshell. Uh, Ideally. Yeah. 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 Hopefully you look back on it with some pride and some regret and you, you know, you learn from the bad things, you learn from the good things and 
Uh, that's the way it that goes. only means that you're human, right? I mean, yeah, hopefully. Um, ho- yeah, well, I would hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll mention one more that I watched. Um, kind of get that out there, and then uh, I'll save another one for another recording. Since we record uh, all kinds of craziness all the time nowadays, uh, my son and I did just uh, we did a watch of uh, Police Story, nineteen eighty five. Uh. He was ready for another Jackie Chan film. So this one is um, we reviewed it a long time ago, and it's a uh, it's a great Jackie Chan film. But I got to say, watching it with my eleven year old son, it's interesting how much uh, kind of dead time there is and how much legal talk there is yep. in the movie. Yeah, yep. uh, when he wanted just another action scene. Or, you know, at least shorter scenes of, you know, them doing things like talking about uh, witness protection and things like that. So I think he kind of tuned in and out a little bit. Uh, I think he still likes Rumble in the Bronx more, which is fine. Everybody's got their Jackie Chan uh, film they love. But he did love the action scenes in this, especially the climax and, of course, the opening in the shantytown, which is just insane. Even when you watch it to this day, it's still just nuts. And, uh, you know, it just makes me realize more and more that there'll never be, there might never be, I'm not going to say there never will be, because I never would say never, but, you know, there just isn't anybody that's like Jackie Chan. He's just got a unique um, charisma, a unique moveset, and uh, it's just, it's amazing that his career turned out like it did, considering how hard they tried to make him, you know, an action star in America. And uh, a Bruce Lee clone before that. And that, uh, you know, that's two strikes and you're out. And usually in the movie business, all it takes is one strike. And uh, then he goes back and says, just let me do well, it he myself. Well, also, he also had the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of forgiveness of the, the Chinese film industry, which is just such a grindhouse. Yeah. That, you know, he kind of was, was allowed a little bit of uh, leeway because it's just so fucking, you know, constant. Right, I mean, yes. it's not quite the same uh, as uh, filmmaking, the film industry in the, in uh, in America. Oh yeah, I would say it's not. I would say it's completely different, actually. I would say it's a lot different. Um, but in, anyway, uh, he he did enjoy it, and of course, I enjoyed the rewatched, and it was uh, it was fun. It's a weird you know, going back and watching these movies. Sometimes it's weird. So this time, I've really focused on the score. Okay. And the score is strange to this one. It's very guitar heavy. And uh, it's a little out of place. And it's a little, you know, like some Asian films, it's a little out of whack sometimes. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the right music is being played during the right moments. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it kind of gives it that uh, uniqueness that Police Story is kind of known for as well. Well, I haven't watched that one in Christ a long time. Uh, I do remember. I mean, I did buy the Eureka uh, box set. Uh-huh. Um, so I and I have that coming up fairly soon in the in the to watch pile but uh at the same time i i do remember thinking or, or i should say i do remember remembering uh that I, you know i wasn't exactly blown away by uh police story overall mm. uh elements of it yes mm-hmm. absolutely 100 percent uh but the overall uh takeaway from it was just kind of like oh it's good yeah. uh you know yeah. not uh didn't, yeah. uh didn't blow me away yeah uh so i i'm very 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 interested uh, to uh, to see where I come up on it now, yeah, but yeah, we shall yeah. see. It's an interesting one to revisit every now and then, because right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does have, yeah, it has at least two or three uh, really great Jackie Chan moments, um, in a career full of great moments. 
So Indeed, yeah. All right, we're going to take a uh, short break. We're going to come back and discuss The Frighteners from uh, 1996. We'll be back right after this. Classic for everybody. How about that? Where um, I could make a cowbell joke, but I'm not going to make one. I don't think you should. <laughs> I don't think we need the cowbell joke anymore. Even it is a great joke, but it's. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, okay, so the Frighteners, 1996. I literally. It's a frighteners. Yeah, it's a Frighteners. I really literally picked this because it's on my to watch pile. So it's again one of those <laughs> things. I saw it sitting there. I bought it when I was up in uh, the Baltimore area, uh, hanging out up there um, with Troy, and uh, we were having a good time up there, and um, went to a local store, the He Frequents, and I saw it there, and I was like, you know what, I have that on HD DVD, and my HD DVD player... That will not play anymore? Yeah, it crapped out, so it's time to upgrade. (laughs) My reel-to-reel has taken a shit, so... (laughs) So, I picked it up. Uh, after a tragic car accident that kills his wife, a man discovers he can communicate with the dead to con people. Mm, not quite, yeah. but yes. Yeah. Uh, however, when a demonic spirit appears, he may be the only one who can stop it from killing the living and the dead, which is a bit of a twist. It's a twist. And this uh, demonic spirit cannot just kill the living. He kills the dead as well. All right, so I've seen this movie before, but it had been a long time. I think I've seen it twice before. This might be the third time I've watched it. I've seen it a few times. Yeah. This was a bomb when it came out. It made a little bit of money, yes. but uh, it didn't recoup its budget. Uh, but it was also Peter Jackson's uh, foray into Hollywood filmmaking, I believe, even though he still got to shoot it in New Zealand. And it certainly looks like New Zealand. It doesn't look like any town in America I can think of, even oh, New England-type towns, which I think it... It's trying to ape a little bit, but it doesn't even look like that. Um, it certainly looks like New Zealand to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, again, he's always been a special effects guy, and uh, this was an opportunity to do that. Now, these special effects are interesting. Um, I think they hold up for the most part, but we'll talk about it here as we just, yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about it as we discuss here. But uh, okay. 
Let's hear what you thought about a revisit. Oh, my yes. Uh, I am a big fan of this one. I'm a big champion of it, even though I, I do recognize that it. it's heavily flawed. Uh, you know, from the very, I, I think, opening segment, you really get the feel that this is kind of uh, Peter Jackson's stab at uh, doing a Spielberg, Zemeckis sort of uh, picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, some of the shots of the house reminded me explicitly uh, of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, which would have been going on around then. Uh, would have been finishing up, I think, around then. Because uh, I think that went, what, seven seasons from like 91-ish to 98 or 97? I think so. Um, I think so. Somewhere around there. So, but And, and let's face it. I think that uh, Jackson absolutely succeeds in that regard. I think he shows that he's got the chops to do it. Uh, and, you know, the opening also kind of presents the presents us uh, with a, a pretty great cold opening uh, that gives a really nice hook to the story. So I think that instantly, uh, just about you're in uh, on the movie, right yeah. up to, you know, yeah. until when it actually kicks off. Um, I think what I always then, realize when I see these movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I got choked up a little bit. When I see these films. Me too. Yeah. Uh, is how much I enjoy Peter Jackson's style. I don't always love yes. the films, but he has a unique style that's very Peter Jackson. I I am a huge Peter. Well, I, I'm a huge Peter Jackson proponent. Yes. Uh, even though you know, and and, and I'm kind of going to get into this now. Um, I I I love his movies, uh, especially his early movies: Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, Dead Alive. Uh, this uh, heavenly creatures, uh, they're just I, for me. They're they're fantastic independent movies, uh, and especially for what he was able to pull off on less than shoestring budgets. Uh, and I remember very very specifically um, reading about uh, what he was doing down there, down under. Well, not down under. Uh, sorry, Australians. Um, uh, what he was doing and how he was doing it, where they would talk about like you know how he would. Uh, take a camera and, and literally pull it underneath a, uh, an actor's legs to you know come up to that uh, that shot of a, a guy with like half his head blown off in bad taste yeah uh, and his brain's dripping out and you're just you're just sitting there and, and when you and then and then when you actually watch him doing it on screen you're just it's a, it's a marvel um, and the enthusiasm that comes off screen from the guy is really I think infectious and I think that that goes a long way in the same way that that, that I, I really champion uh, Guillermo del Toro, because um, I think that the, the two these two guys are really kind of peas in a pod in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, I think that all, at the end of the day, also and kind of towards the debit end of uh, the list, this was you know Jackson's giant leap into into CG technocracy, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I think that he has become a, a technocrat in a lot of ways, and I think that's kind of sad yeah. uh, and tragic. Uh, because I think that he's such a good filmmaker. He had such a good grasp. And then just to be so preoccupied um, with, uh, you know, this this stuff that is just not the same and is not kind of putting paid to the skills that he has. I think it's really just kind of a tragedy in a lot of ways. And listen, I don't, I do not begrudge the guy his success with the Lord of the Rings and all that. I do not begrudge him, you know, his money. I do not begrudge the stuff that he did, the stuff that he, uh, between him and, uh, and, you know, having a hand in creating Weta in the same way that Lucas uh, had a hand in creating ILM. 
I am a hundred percent for. Right. Uh, but when you when you're watching stuff like uh, Lord of the Rings, and then you see uh, where he's he's replacing fantastic uh, practical effects work with you know just kind of passe uh, CG stuff, you're just like, I, I don't get it at mm. this point. You know why? Um, but you know, getting back to that, you know, the CG in this one, I mean, it is really really primitive. Um, but I think that it also works pretty damn well with what Jackson was doing. I, th- I think that he really had, he really had a notion of how CG can be used. And I think that he was really trying to use it to the best of its ability as a tool in this movie. Uh, and I, I found that kind of interesting then that he would just kind of take the deep dive into where he, he went with his career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy, he, he very, very clearly thinks everything through. Uh, and certainly when it comes to effects work. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you just, you know, I, I think that really all you have to do is look at the archi- the, uh, the archival archival uh, footage segments in this movie, uh, and they, they they look fantastic. They yeah. look uh, they look archival, and and it's something that he really perfected. And especially if you look back at uh, the the mo- the movie that he produced, the 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 mockumentary, uh, Forgotten Silver, uh, yeah. which is just man, I mean, you want to see some fantastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, go have a look at Forgotten Silver. I cannot think of the guy who directed that off the top of my head, but he was another Kiwi. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that aspect to it. And, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and bemoan it because I do like Peter Jackson. Uh, and I'm even one of the few people who liked his King Kong. Don't love it. Yeah. Um, I like but, it. I mean, I like it. it's good. Yeah. I'll defend it. I'll defend it. I would defend most of it. Uh, I do yeah. think that it has it has some very very heavy flaws that work against it. Yeah. Not least of uh, not least of which is that it, it is enormously bloated, uh, and it is wildly miscast. Yeah, um, it's one of those but, moments I mean, in Hollywood where it's given where somebody is given the money to make their dream project. Right, and it happens every now and then, and it happened for Jackson, and I think he couldn't let it go. Right. No, no, <laughs> he couldn't let certain really things couldn't. go. He he had to. He just had to say, you know, he had to get it all in there. He's like, you know, I got right. my one chance to make this. Right. Gonna... Well, it's one, of the, it's one of the big, big, big budget uh, vanity projects of all time. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, so I kind of respect it, but at the same time, you know. Eh. I think uh, I think you bring up an interesting point, though, because I think, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings stuff, there's so much practical effect stuff there and in, 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 in camera tricks and things like that. Oh, and yeah. I apologize to everybody. I'm kind of losing my voice a little bit, but um, the, the the Lord of the Ring trilogy itself, that one I think is a really good mix of the CG and the practical, and he really nails it. And so is Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly Creatures was was yeah. uh, really fascinating, especially you know when you get to the the the, the imaginary stuff. But the thing is, there, you know, it, it it's the way that he used it. This stuff was meant to be imaginary so you kind of forgive it a little bit for well, the, uh, yeah. the, the flaws because once king right? kong hits yeah it's, it's for me it is there's there's a difference between peter jackson pre-king kong and post-king kong i would say pre-frighteners post-frighteners actually. yeah but probably yeah but I, I, again i think the lord of the rings i think it's a good mix i think kong well is, heavenly, heavenly creatures is what gave him that's what gave him the impetus to get into cg yeah yeah and he said that i believe uh multiple times in the past and then the frighteners was him kind of being his demo reel yeah and for me and then he went from there when he gets to the lovely bones and the hobbit films 
There he's heavily reliant on CG to a point that that is almost well, it isn't almost, it is. It's a deterrent to the movie, I think. Yes. Um he's I mean, I like the Hobbit trilogy because I love that story, but at the same time I fully recognize it's mostly an animated movie uh in some ways and it and it has a look I don't really care for. Everything is gold. It's all I remember when I think about those films. Uh, the Lovely Bones, I like bits and pieces of, but uh, I liked it more than most people did. But, um, you know, I just, I, I, I don't know how filmmakers end up like this sometimes. I really don't. Um, but, you know. Well, I think it, I think it's an obsession with perfection. Yeah, probably. That that they have where, you know, if it, I, I want this thing to look exactly like it looks in my head. Mm. And and when you have this this tool of CG to be able to do that. Uh, I think that they really kind of some guys just can't let it go and just kind of like you know be like this is the best that I could do okay now I got to walk away or you know this is the best that I could do with this tool now I have to switch to a screwdriver rather than a hammer mm-hmm. uh, and I think that you know some guys just they they just have a hard time with that yeah yeah uh, and and like we've said before you know you know when uh, when all you have is a hammer everything's a nail yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the the trap that some filmmakers get into, and I and I think that very very unfortunately, uh, that's what Jackson got into. And, and you know, I, I find I, I have the hardest time in the world saying sentences like that because I I so love this guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he loves movies. We love movies. I mean, yeah. And 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 he's he has so much talent, so many skills that he brings to the screen, not only uh, in terms of uh, his technical skills, like on screen, but his his writing skills. He's a good writer. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, his, uh, when he's, he's paired up, even with, even when he's not paired up specifically with Fran Walsh, even though he's been paired up with Fran Walsh pretty much all the time. Um, but, you know, I, I just I, I just I, I, I get very disappointed in that. Mm. Uh, but that, that that's not getting uh, getting off base a little bit here because we're talking about the frighteners the frighteners i do like and i do think it's a very well written movie um but i I do think that you know obviously this movie has issues that stem primarily from uh, a technical aspect i think yeah uh and you know i i watched the director's cut and you know i have to say that as fond as i am of this movie and and i really do think it's undervalued in a lot of ways i think that the theatrical cut is really superior yes so I agree uh, with you. I, I watched the, the director's cut as well. Right. I, I think the, the movie works way better with a short runtime, and yep. some of yep. the the extraneous stuff and the shenanigans that you know is thrown in there really just it, it feels like it was added in just so that Jackson could kind of play. And this is kind of where you see that that technocratic side kind of taken taken over because oh I have a CG you know I have the server that will do this that and the other thing so now I have to use it and it's like well no you don't but he did yeah um so you get, you get this thing and it just it becomes very much a distraction mm-hmm. uh that takes away from the overall movie so I mean anybody out there who has not seen the frighteners uh, as much as I hate to say it, and as much as I'm usually a proponent of director's cuts, I would say watch the theatrical cut first. Yes. To get a a, a decent handle on how you feel about the movie overall. Yeah. Uh, then if you want to, yeah, go ahead and explore the, the director's cut. I totally agree with you on that. Cool. Uh, we are in agreement for once. Yeah. No, no we're in uh, agreement most so, of the time. But that, that <laughs> the, you know, I, th- I think director's cuts are interesting. I don't always... Think the director's no. cut is better, and but I think no. it's nice no. to have that option. 
Yes. So for me, well, that's the thing. I, I that's the thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 100 percent for having director's cuts out there, but I want the options. Yes. And that's yeah. that's kind of what. And now I'm really going to get a tangent going here. Uh, that's what pisses me off about Sp- or uh, not Spielberg, uh, Lucas. Yeah. And uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Is that you know that 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 decree that you know only the special editions and all this shit that I dicked around with is going to be available to people who want to watch these movies, and that really really chaps my ass yeah 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 uh, because i have always been and will always be uh, a proponent of the idea that you know movies are as much historical documents as they are uh, artistic statements and you know to just say that you know well he's the artist and he can do whatever he wants and you know if he doesn't want to let it go he can he doesn't have to i'm just like well and, and yeah no that's not the way it works uh the, you know we, <laughs> What would people say if uh, if uh, uh, Da Vinci just kept dicking around with the the Mona Lisa <laughs> until the day he was dead, or uh, you know the, the Sistine Chapel until you know? I mean, come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Half of the half of the fucking half of the point of uh, of being an artist is you know putting it out there and just being like you know this is what it is. This is you know what I'm saying. Well, it's like most um, things. It's the ability to walk away, right? And some right, people right, right. some people have it and some people don't. And but. The important thing, I think, is, you know, Cameron does this as well. And there's these filmmakers that are these perpetual perfectionists. And I think that, you know, the important thing is to make it all available. I don't, I don't, I think. I'm okay. I'm okay with filmmakers being perfectionists, but you have X amount of time to be a perfectionist. Yeah. Then you got to move on. Yeah. Well, there's only so long you can fucking crowd up the fucking dance floor. Yeah. Then you got to move on. Yeah. And that's what the home video, to me, that's what it's for. It's like, okay, so. You What's got this cut out. If you want to, yeah, if you want to get your cut out there, that's fine. But this is sure. against the meeting of commerce but, and uh, art. And but if, right, and 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 again, and I'm I'm okay with them continuing to dick around with stuff as long as I have the option to yes. watch either version. Then I'm okay with it. Right. As long as we're, you know, he's saying, well, yeah, you can watch the original theatricals. Plus, you can also watch, if you wanted to, this, this, and you, as a human being with a mind of your own, can make up your 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 own mind about how you feel about, you know, which way that I went. Right. Uh, when when they just when you know when they're just like, yeah, no, this is the only one you get. Then I get a little bit sticky about it yeah. because it, I just think that's ridiculous. Well, it is a sticky situation at that point. It is a sticky wicket. It's sticky. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, Trini Alvarado uh, is in this movie, uh, and I kind of love that. You know, when uh, she shouts to her husband to uh, to quote unquote get her off, uh, she's uh, I don't think just referring to the uh, the floating bed. Um, she <laughs> clearly has a very loveless marriage with this guy, uh, who is very domineering. Um, and I think that it's really kind of pretty brilliant uh, that Jackson kind of keeps the uh, the Ray character around uh, to annoy uh, Michael J. Fox for a little bit. Um, though, you know, he, he does also know when to call it quits with that aspect, uh, as well. Um, I think it's better for the movie to, uh, to focus on the ghosts that we start with, uh, because they, you know, have a little bit more personality, maybe a little bit more cartoonishly personality ish. Uh, that's a horrible way to express what I was thinking, but it's the only way that it came out. So that's what it is. Uh, and I think that's also pretty brilliant that he actually cast Michael J. Fox, who is an actor that I have long admired. Um, though I've also, I don't think ever felt that he has quite gotten to a high bear. Uh, I don't think that he's ever quite, uh, achieved the level that I think that he should have. Um, but I think that, you know, that being said, uh, I think that he, I think that he came pretty damn close here, uh, which is a really just an odd thing to say about his career in general. 
um, because it's it's really against type for him uh, to play someone who is as uh, misanthropic as the the Frank Bannister character is. Um, but at the at the same time, he absolutely has that uh, Michael J. Fox charm that just kind of shines through, just because you know he's Michael J. Fox and he really just can't help it. Um, yes, and he's you know I I, I just I, he's one of those guys that you're just like you 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 want him to have done better mm-hmm. uh and i just it, it kind of pisses me off in a way yeah um because i i can't really point to any single michael j fox movie that i'm just like oh my god i have to watch that one uh you know every week on rotation uh yeah. i don't think there is one teen yeah. wolf probably comes closest <laughs> which is you know yes. I mean, that's a statement in and of itself uh, but I think this is up there too because I think it, it did kind of give the it, it did kind of give him as an actor a bit of a, a little bit of a stretch and a bit of a um, a moving away from uh, the image that he had uh, cultivated yeah. uh, in in Hollywood up to this point. I know, man. Go, go, go! <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I think this was um, the last time he would uh, be a lead in a movie. I mean, I think everything else I he did that was voice this, work. It's very close to the yeah. end of uh, of him being a leading man here. He mostly did. Uh, TV after that, and then of course he ends right. up, he ends up he uh, Alzheimer's or not Alzheimer's Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, yeah. and he's been struggling through that ever since. But indeed, yeah, no, he's he's always I've always enjoyed Michael J. Fox films, yes, uh, even the 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 big hits, you know, the Back to the Futures and whatnot. But I've always enjoyed yeah. all of his films. I even like Light of Day, the Paul Schrader film with Hitch Joan Jet and Bright Lights, Big City. I like that film quite a bit. Even some of the rom coms he did, I enjoyed. So. I think it's just his natural charm. Uh, well, it is, and I mean, it, it, he's one of those guys that just you know you can't not like him. I mean, yeah. he's so difficult not to like. But that's what I think is that's what I think is interesting about this uh, this particular movie is that he's a guy who's you know uh, who you he's he's forcing you to not like him, even though you still kind of want to like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because he's Michael J. Fox. Uh, and he, he really just—I I think he does a really, really good, a uh, good job of uh, kind of skirting the line, um, because you know the Bannister—the Bannister character itself is 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 pretty interesting because you know here's a guy who you know he can communicate with the dead, and that's you know what he prefers uh, since you know he's stuck in like a moment of uh, of past guilt, um, and I think that it's also uh, interesting that he can he can legit see and talk to the dead. But at the same time, he's still a charlatan. Uh, so it's nice. It's this really nice little double twist yeah. uh, on the, uh, the that whole like psychic scam artist angle. Um, that uh, and 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 you know Fox does a uh, does a nice job with it. Well, I think. Yeah, he does. Uh, and uh, and plus he has uh, he, well, I won't talk about his wardrobe because it's a Michael J. Fox wardrobe. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know the, the uh, getting back to the actual character. Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's nice that uh, you know the 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 Frank uh, Bannister character. He needs to literally uh, confront the past uh, in more ways than one in order to move on. And that's a, a you know a fairly sophisticated thing that Jackson kind of does. Then when he uh, in the in the uh, the screenplay and the editing of the movie, uh, and that bears itself out. I think in the ending uh, when we get to that point. Um, so you do get uh, some some decent uh, practical effects, which again we go back to the whole you know CG technocrat versus uh, practical effects sort of uh, uh, discussion or debate, or if you have, uh, and you know because Rick Baker does a really really nice job uh, with the judge makeup on John Aston, 
uh, who John Aston, you know, I got to say, is equally great uh, in the role, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, because yep. you, you absolutely, or at least I do, uh, by his performance without any of like the Gomez Adams sort of baggage. Uh, you know, not that I don't love Aston in general, because I do. Uh, and him, you know, as Gomez Adams in particular. Yeah. Uh, but I think that he does a fantastic job. And, and Baker's, um, Baker's, uh, makeup effects work here is just, is, uh, you know, top of his game as always. And yeah. here's a guy, here's a guy who I, I, every day, uh, regret that he decided to, uh, to get out of the game. Yeah. Uh, but I, I absolutely understand why he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, is what it is. Um, I think that uh, as a horror comedy, uh, which is always a tough uh, thing to pull off, I, th- I think that this movie works really well, uh, all things being equal. Uh, and that's something, you know, since, I mean, not only is that a tough thing to, to pull off, but I think that Jackson uh, had kind of made a sort of kitchen industry out of pulling it off since the start of his career uh combining the uh the absurd with uh the violently um horrific uh sort of aspects um and i think that you know he does uh as nice a job here of balancing the two halves as he did in any other movie that he he made uh, in a lot of ways um you know the horror stuff in here is is truly gruesome uh and i don't think it it, it doesn't pull any punches i believe this is rated r uh, I, I didn't uh, double check, but I, I believe it is. Now, I think it's um, PG thirteen, but I'm not sure about the director's cut. I don't know about okay. the director's cut. The director's cut might be unrated. Okay, um, but like I said, because it, I had the it, same thought you did. I thought, wow, this is a pretty heavy PG thirteen. Yeah, right. But I remember, um, I remember initially having that thought as well. I remember that the movie, when I saw it the first time, I think I saw it in theaters. I remember thinking, wow, this is a pretty intense PG thirteen. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I thought about showing it to my son, and then uh, he he it's wasn't really interested. It's a little bit much for for the younger crowd, I think. Yeah, it's it's it. Yeah, it goes places. And it's also I saw well, yeah, and, and it's also I think a little bit more sophisticated than most kids are are willing to give themselves over to in a lot of ways. Yeah, probably. Um, which is weird to say about a movie like The Frighteners, but I mean, I I do think that that holds. Um, and like I said, it, it doesn't pull any punches, especially once we get to uh, the big reveal of the movie in the finale. Uh, I mean, there's some, there's some. I mean, like we've been saying, there's some pretty nasty stuff in this film. Uh, and and while I, I think that the more serious stuff works better than anything specifically comedic, uh, the comedy I think works in keeping us involved in developing our characters. But even there, uh, I think that Jackson, you know, keeps some of his more uh, transgressive tendencies. Like uh, there's that uh, that uh, specific moment. Thanks for leaving hair on the floor, Bear. Um, like when the, uh, the the judge comments about you know how he likes it when they lie still like that, uh, you know it's kind of it's kind of something that's a very adult joke. Let's yeah. say it's very dark. Uh, and very dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going down a road. Yeah. Um, and this and this then brings me to Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. Uh, who I think uh, truly stands out in this picture, uh, and I would suggest is the thing that really bridges the gap between the horror and comedy aspects of the movie overall. Um, because he is so insane and so insanely ludicrous, uh, like with his uh, hemorrhoid donut uh, and the, the, the fucking fantastic touch uh, of having him get nauseous uh, whenever a woman yells at him, which yes. to this day, I just I love it. Yeah, uh, it just works so well. But then he's, he's downright creepy uh, and he's a legit threat once the uh, the full depth of, uh, of his commitment uh, to what he believes is, is you know, revealed in the movie. Um, yeah, because he initially uh, comes off as 
just kind of this buffoony yeah. sort of conspiracy theory kind of yeah yeah and then by the time you get to almost. the time you get to the end of the film you realize he's a real threat mm-hmm. and it's an interesting performance too yeah it feels like one of those performances where it's like peter jackson's like here's the idea i got you go away come back tell me what show me what you got and this right. is jeffrey combs he brought all this to it and combs combs is another guy who you know as much as he's a cult actor uh has, has always been a guy that i've really admired well, no, he's, uh, i've he's, always liked his yeah. work i've always thought that he's brought his a game he's always brought yeah, he's he, a good actor. There, i've never seen him not bring something special to and uh you know okay perfect example he brought something of value to faust love of the damned which is an abysmal <laughs> abysmal fucking movie yeah 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 but he brought something to it yeah um granted, he's, he's that kind of actor he's that kind of actor he, he exactly. brings something yes. to things yes uh, and then this leads into the uh, the 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 film's aspect of of serial killers and obsession with serial serial killers and and death and you know this desire for like morbid celebrity. Yeah. Um, but you know the the same way that uh, the the legends of serial killers doesn't fully square with reality. I found it interesting that ghosts have legends too uh, yeah. in this movie, which uh-huh. you know kind of is a little bit of a a, a turn for uh, for Jackson to throw in there. Which is where we get the whole aspect of the soul collector coming in, uh, because you know even in this movie even ghosts can die, uh, which is really kind of nice because then you know there's everybody's got skin in the game, right? Right. Right. But I think that the the point of all this stuff then uh, is basically the lesson that we all took from you know Shawshank Redemption, which is uh, get busy living or get busy dying, uh, and it's really no good to obsess about death. Uh, or and I, I think we you can extrapolate then from that uh, obsess about anything. Uh, for that matter, to the point of ignoring life in the moment, because you know that's why you know you get these wonderful things like in uh, even in Kung Fu Panda, uh, where he says you know the past is the past, the future is the future, but we have to live in the now because that's why they call it a present. Um, so I, you know I I, I kind of think that that's where Jackson was going ultimately thematically with a lot of the movie, um, and I and I like that. I mean the, the guy the, the, he had so much so much going on in this movie uh, that's really kind of um, underplayed and I think uh, not recognized as, as much as it should be um, is the best way that I can think of it without kind of being like kind of finger wagging about it. Um, so I, I love the uh, the Troy Perry Sheriff character as well uh, in this movie uh, he, he, because he's, he's, he's this really you know, good old timey kind of cop figure uh, who who keeps a really level head in the face of, or maybe despite, uh, you know everything that's uh, happening around him, uh, because he's just, he's just, he's just a really good person uh, who's fulfilling his responsibility whether he wants to or not. Uh, and I just I love it every time that he shows up on screen, and he just I think he does a wonderful wonderful job. And again, he's he's one of those guys who's just underrated and underrated in, in this uh, in this particular movie. Uh, which brings me then to uh, D. Wallace Stone, who is also incredibly impressive in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and in a role that's you know truly disturbed uh and i think that she does a really 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 nice job of kind of owning both sides of the uh the portrayal that she's she's putting out there you know uh being disturbed uh as pathetic and disturbed as insane uh that she she uh she manages to do um and you know a lot of folks i think most folks uh only think of uh d wallace in terms of uh the howling 
uh, if they think of her at all, uh, for better or worse, uh, or maybe Twilight Zone. Was she, she was in Twilight Zone the movie, right? Uh, I don't know uh, if she was or not. I don't know. I forget. Uh, I, I can tell you this though: when I fired this movie up, I immediately thought, "Well, that looks like D. Wallace Stone," and it was D. Wallace Stone. <laughs> I had forgotten she was in it. Yeah, yeah, no, but she's she's a, she's a, she, here's an actress who I think is has always been incredibly game uh, for just about anything that you could throw at her, and I think you know I really love uh, what she brings here. Uh, yeah, I she's think really that, good. You know, she. I think this movie this movie is just about perfectly cast. Uh, in a lot of ways, which is is something to say, really, um, and especially for you know such a a low level sort of genre movie as this is, but I I truly think and I I will stand by that statement. Uh, this movie is just about perfectly cast, uh, and that that even goes then to you know Jake Busey uh, as you know D Wallace Stone's uh, foil. Yeah, then uh, yeah. he's great as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and he really brings it, especially with you know that grin and the, you know when when, we, when uh, um, Jackson's doing all the stuff with the uh, the archive the archival stuff, uh, and then getting into you know the finale, uh, which is just incredibly impressive, uh, as impressive as anything that uh, Mr. Quentin Tarantino wrote, uh, as far as being able to be intricately woven, um, and I think that. Uh, you know, Jackson really does a, a fantastic job here. Uh, and I think he, not only in, in being able to keep the strands uh, separate but entwined, but, you know, how easily uh, he manages to go between time periods uh, and how how sort of effortless he makes it look uh, and how he keeps all of the players organized in this thing. Uh, I, I mean, it's a, it's a really, really Im- like stunningly fascinatingly impressive piece of uh, cinematic blogging. Uh, I mean, you, you, you never get lost uh, trying to follow any of the characters or the action uh, in the, uh, in the, the finale and you, which is something where you easily could, uh, but you don't because, you know, and Jackson even, he, he whips out some, uh, some slick old school tricks like simply changing lighting uh, to change time frames. Um, and you know, that's something that, uh, you know, is really just, it's, uh, it's so subtle, uh, that when it happens, you're just kind of like blown away by just how simple, um, the, uh, the effect is. And overall, I think that the, the ending satisfies as well. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's the, uh, the, the Blue Oyster Cult song that ends the film, even though it's not done by Blue Oyster Cult here, uh, which is a tragedy, but it is what it is. Um... I mean, I think Frighteners is end of the day. It's 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 very far from being a perfect film, obviously. Uh, and I think that the uh, the the technology not being able to keep up with Jackson's needs as a filmmaker, I think, uh, makes up for a lot of that. Uh, end of the day, um, and I think that the other sort of uh, big demerit uh, is that some of the jokes in this thing just don't hit. Uh, I mean, I, I still like that, you know, Jackson wanted to keep a lightness to, to balance out like the, the, the darker aspects of the movies as he, as, like I said, as he did, uh, from the very beginning of his career. Uh, and I think that largely he does. So, you know, I, I'm willing to give him a hell of a lot of credit for that. Uh, and for what the film is able to accomplish in spite of sort of the, uh, the, 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 the more lowbrow, not working quite, uh, specific comedic aspects. 
in, in sort of the same way that you know we kind of uh, kind of look down our noses at um, uh, some of the uh, the, the uh, humor in uh, in like Chinese movies. Uh, you know where they they they, they rub their ass and they rub their head and they do these big like mugging for the camera sort of moments. Yeah. Uh, but we're willing to overlook those things. Uh, I think in service of a higher uh, goal, I guess would be for one of a better term. Um, but yeah, uh, Frighteners. I, I've I've always championed this movie. Uh, I will continue to. Uh, I I do think it's uh, it was kind of the turning point in. Uh, in Jackson's career, and I kind of find it fascinating in that regard, for better or worse. Um, and you know, I'm really, 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 really keeping my fingers crossed uh, that at some point in time he will kind of take a step back and be like, you know, maybe I need to, you know, kind of wash this away and kind of uh, regain my footing uh, in the real world. I'm hoping that he does uh, because, yeah, I mean, after the first Hobbit movie, I stopped. Uh, and I haven't been back since. Uh, and I never saw Lovely Bones, and I never was interested in it anyway. So, um, so there's that. Uh, and that's uh, that's all I got. So, you know, kick yeah. it over to you. Yeah, I would say either you're not interested in Lovely Bones, you're not going to get anything out of it you would want anyway. Right. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add. Uh, we talk quite a bit about it here. The uh, you know the the idea that this is Jackson's chance to kind of you know kind of get out there and make some big Hollywood movies and how this kind of informs in some way because uh, he even talks about the fact that he had all these computers right. and stuff and how he would go on to make uh, Lord of the Rings. It's very interesting. But this movie also so here's the thing. One of the things that this is one of those situations where Danny Elfman comes in. And because Danny Elfman comes in, you immediately, at this point in time, at this era, you get the strongest Tim Burton vibe mm -hmm. out of nowhere immediately. Now, mm -hmm. it changes because Jackson and Burton are two different filmmakers. I'd say Burton's much more stoic, much more keep the camera still, let the actors do their thing, whereas Jackson likes to move the camera around. And even mm -hmm. take even even shoot strange angles, really. Well, that's that's I think largely coming because of uh, Burton's animation background. Yeah, more than likely. But that Danny Elfman score is so synonymous with Tim Burton that immediately when I'm starting to watch the opening of this movie, I'm getting a really strong yeah, Burton yeah, yeah. vibe. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it goes away. But I'm just saying, it's there right from the get go. It's like, oh, whoa, oh, yeah, ooh. <laughs> mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, uh, look at a swab. Love it. Um, the effects, I think for the most part, they still hold up. Um, there, the, there, there is some rough stuff. I, I remember thinking, this is one of those things where I remember thinking when, uh, the Reaper, the Bartlett character is attacking D. Wallace Stone in the beginning, I remember thinking, man, look how far we've come. That looks so real. But of course, going back and watching it now, it doesn't look real at all. No. Um, that's just the way effects work. And it just, you know, but I do agree that the practical effects parts of it, um, even though I'm not terribly in love with the ghost logic here, because they fall through most things except floors. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's picky choosy kind yeah. of sort of stuff. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wishful thinking type stuff, and that's fine. Right, I can get on board with it. Um, it works for me for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, again, I like the angle that this um this 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 reaper can destroy not only human lives, but can also destroy ghost lives, mm -hmm. and that both entities are scared of the same thing that's a nice twist to the whole story 
And that helps the story a lot, I think. There's also, you know, there's always this kind of, I think of Peter Jackson the same way I think of Sam Raimi. They kind of come together at the same time in a way. Um, uh, yeah. Raimi's on the yeah. other side of the world, but and Jackson's on, you know, they're on two different sides of the world, but you certainly get this idea there's, of... There's a, there's a level of enthusiasm and a level of energy yeah. that you get out of both of these guys. Yeah, gore and comedy and how they can mix. Right. I mean, Bad Taste is very much, in a lot of ways, a Sam Raimi film uh, and vice versa. It's mm-hmm. a... Evil Dead, you could argue, is kind of a Peter Jackson film in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to watch their development as directors. It really is. And Indeed. how they've, you know, come out of that and what they've become. And, of course, you know, Raimi walked away for a long time, but I think he's coming back, right? He's doing uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider... Or no, no, I think uh, he's doing Doctor, uh, Doctor Strange. That's what it is, Doctor Strange. Yeah, the Doctor uh, Strange sequel, he's doing that. So, And he's already promised it'll be dark. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that means. I don't anyway. know how dark Randy can get. I don't think he's capable. <laughs> yeah. He'll be fake shemping it all oh, the way through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves that. Um, but I think that Jackson's visual sensibilities, being all over this, being in New Zealand, I think gives this film a unique flavor. New Zealand. Yeah. It gives it a unique flavor, though. It really does. It it helps the picture. It really it helps, helps the, out the picture. Yeah, helps out the picture. He's uh, got the frighteners here, there. <laughs> We were looking for we a dr- we drill sergeant, and we cast Ali Ami. Ali Ami. <laughs> he came in for a couple of days. I, I got to say, our Australian New Zealand accents aren't bad. They're not, no, not, as, they're not as bad as I thought I, well, they would I, be. I, I watch a lot of uh, Mr. In-Between, so, yeah, yeah. you know. I'm not, you know, I mean, we're not perfect, surely, but, I mean, you know, not as bad as I <laughs> thought we'd be. Yeah. Not as bad as I thought we would be. Uh, nah, could be worse. Might help that I have a cold. That might be part of it. <laughs> yes, Indeed. So I like this movie a lot, but I do feel, because I watched the director's cut, it does feel a little uneven in spots. Yes. Um, the, the director's cut, I, like I said, I mean, I, I absolutely would not recommend director's cut for a first time watching yeah. this. And because of that, maybe I had a different reaction this time. I still love it. I st- well, I mean, love's a bit of a strong word, but I still like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think I like Peter Jackson's sense of humor. I love the darkness of his sense of humor. Um, I love that he can sneak it in there. Uh, again, I can't believe. I don't remember if the uh, I like them when they lay still joke. I don't know if that one was in the original cut or not. I can't remember. Uh, it was. Yeah. But I remember even thinking when I saw this, I remember thinking some of the jokes and some of the moments. I was like, wow, they're really, I can't believe they're getting away with this. Mm-hmm. Because I know that original cut was PG 13. I don't know about the director's cut. Again, it's probably unrated. Most director's cuts are. So tend to be. Yeah. It was a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more rough in spots, uh, or as far as ratings go. Mm-hmm. But I think the you know the the acting is good across the board. I mean, even the overacting. I mean, he's he's cast in this Peter Dobson guy who's playing the boyfriend. I mean, he's cast to be over the top. He's yes. not cast to be a great actor here. He's cast to be a a belligerent bully uh, and a terrible boyfriend. And he, I think he 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 nails that part completely. Uh, Trini Alvarado is kind of this waifish kind of. Um, character who has to develop a backbone and i think she does a really good job Mm -hmm. um john aston's amazing and john aston is always so much more than gomez adams i think people forget that but it's easy to forget that in a few weeks yeah it's always easy to forget though because you know he's just one of those guys kind of like jeffrey combs sometimes you just get lucky in life or even michael j fox uh you know you get that one role that you're always going to be synonymous with i think michael j fox i think he outgrew the marty mcfly thing 
Well, uh, Alex P. Keaton, more than yeah. that. But, I mean, yeah, he's always been that, though, to me. He's always been this guy who kind of encapsulates a role and an era. And the Alex oh, P. Keaton yeah, character. Oh, yeah, he was 80s, 100%. Yeah. yeah, Alex P. Keaton character, the Marty McFly character, and even the Teen mm-hmm. Wolf character, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, very important to me. Uh, I don't know why. Yes. I think because it was on cable TV so much, probably. <laughs> well, and it was one of those movies that when I saw it in the theater, uh, you know, I, I, I love Teen Wolf. I still love Teen Wolf. Yeah, well, it's, so. wolf, it's a werewolf movie, so anything with a werewolf in it, I'm in. So. There's that. Yeah. There's that. Because, yeah, I'm a huge werewolf guy myself. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, I, I think this is really good for a visit revisit, and the sound was really good this time around. I actually pumped it up through my surround sound this time, and man, nice. it was really nice, and it really works in so many ways. And yeah, I think Jackson, you know, I think nowadays we kind of maybe in a little bit we kind of take him for granted a little bit. Um, now he hasn't done amazing things lately, but I think he'll come back around. I mean, I'm hoping he makes the 1010 movie. I'm he really hoping gonna, he does. Yeah, I'm hoping that he makes the 1010 movie he wanted to make, which kind of go back to uh, Walt's question at the beginning. That Steven Spielberg 1010 film is pretty great. It's not. Ah, yeah. It's, it's not. It's not uh, outside of the realm of a uh, Steven Spielberg movie because it's very much an Indiana Jones. Film well, here's a, okay. Here's another one then. Uh, Castle of Cagliostro. Ah, uh, yeah. By uh, Hayao Miyazaki, mm. which you do not think of Miyazaki in terms of uh, a Lupin. Yeah. Third there you go. Movie. There you go. See, we come up with stuff. This takes us a while. Yeah, we're, we're slow and old, so. Yeah. It uh, only gets slower and older. Yes. Um, we hope, uh, yeah, the uh, we hope we get uh, older and not slower. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. If, I think one at this, goes at with this the point other. I'm open to anything. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I had a really good time with it. Um, I'll kick yeah, it over cool. to you for MVTs, Make or Breaks. All right, let's wrap this puppy up. Uh, so, Make or Break for me, I'm going to go with... Um, the Jeffrey Combs roadmap of pain monologue um, because it's one of the things in the film that manages to really be both funny, insane uh, and scary, insane uh, simultaneously. And I really think that it kind of, it bridges the gap that this movie is trying to bridge throughout. Uh, This is kind of that one moment. This kind of that light bulb moment for me. Um, MVT, uh, you know, I I really, really, really want to give it to Michael J. Fox, but I got to go with Peter Jackson. Uh, I think that he really crafted himself a terrific Hollywood uh, calling card here. Um, And I think that it certainly more than paid off for him, uh, for better or worse. Uh, And, um, you know, score, I'm going to go... I'm going to go 7.5 on this one. So. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, uh, my make or break. I'm going to go with the twist, the uh, D. Wallace Stone uh, mm, moment, mm. and that's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a nice twist. I think it sets it, its, is. it, it is. sets itself up well. Now it makes the if you go back and look at the intro, it makes it kind of different. But you know, I think you have good cheats and bad cheats, and I think this is a good cheat. So uh, my MVT, I'm going to go Fox. Uh, okay. Nice. Yeah, I like Michael J. Fox in this movie a lot. I think he does a really good job, uh, and I, I and I agree with you. I think he was a better actor than some of the material he did. I think uh, so. I absolutely think so. Um, it's really a shame what's happened to him and everything. Indeed. But he's still he's still moving along. He's still a champion and things and and doing his best. And my score is the same as yours, seven point five. I agree. Nice. Man. This this movie was uh, fun. You know, twenty something, well, almost twenty years ago, and it's uh, fun now. Still works. Um, almost thirty years. Jesus Christ! Don't don't say it out loud. 
<laughs> Made me just realize that when you said that. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah, five years from now it'll be uh, thirty years. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> just lost oh, my Archie. I just lost my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I just any which way but loosed my bowels. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Ages. Oh, where's Jeffrey Lewis? Uh, age is a thing. Yeah, <laughs> Jeffrey Lewis always looked like he was loosening his bowels. Everywhere. He did. He really did. It was that jowly sort of thing yeah. that he had going on. Yeah, yeah. The he had one of the greatest confusion jowly faces. Bowly. Yeah, Jeffrey Lewis always looked like he was like, huh? Um, all right, uh, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and talk about footprints on the moon. We'll be back right after this. Masters of Reality there, one of my favorite bands. And uh, Ginger Baker on drums there, how about that? Alrighty, let's talk about some Italian cinema. Mm -hmm. One of the founding, what do you call it? Uh, Foundations. Yeah, one of the pillars. Yeah, there we go, founding foundations. Listen to me, I'm a fucking idiot. Uh, (laughs) Founding pillars of uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema was always, uh, and has always been, the love of Italian cinema. And how uh, they are the the great rip-off artist, but also the great... They brought something original to their films as well. Um, Footprints on the Moon, directed by Luigi... Sorry, Luigi Bazzoni. 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 Uh, is an interesting one. La Orme, La Orme, La Orme, La Orme, La Orme. Uh, a woman is tormented by strange dreams of astronauts on the moon. She visits a deserted seaside town whose inhabitants know her, even though she does not know them. Uh, what's interesting about the movie too, is it's kind of informed by film itself because she's, yes, she thinks she's seen this sci-fi film or she's seen this sci-fi film and it's kind of messing with her brain. Uh, it's this is going to be an odd review. I, I I don't think I feel about footprints on the moon the way so many other people feel about footprints on the moon. <laughs> okay. I think I think I struggle with this one a little bit. Uh, okay, be, because I think this film, as much as I like it, I think it meanders a lot. I think it roams and just kind of hovers. I, 
I think that's a fair I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. But I would suggest that part of the point of the movie is that wandering. Yes. Yes. Because the movie is, is all about the, this character trying to figure out what who the hell she is. Yeah. So I can't argue that point either. I think that it really kind of comes down to if you're in the mood for that kind of film. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's not an everyday watch. No. Thing. And it's not so, something I could like recommend to everybody. I could I could say yeah, if you want to see a movie about somebody losing their mind, I can probably name about five other films that would probably be up there. I think, you know, obviously The Shining and some other films. But, of course, you know, I've heard people say that meanders, you know. And, and the, the, so I think sometimes it just kind of depends on your take on that particular film at that particular time. But I've seen this film now a couple times. Uh, I think the last time I watched it, I thought it was just called Footprints. So I don't even know. Why, when you said footprints on the moon, I'm like, okay, well, I've never seen footprints on the moon. Well, I have seen footprints, so I guess I have seen it. <laughs> but it took me a minute to remember that. And I, what what reminded me that I had seen it is when Nicoletta Elmi shows up, mm-hmm. who is uh, anytime Nicoletta Elmi shows up in a film, <laughs> it usually means things are going to start going sideways for a character. She is the quintessential strange redheaded child. Yes, of Italian cinema. <laughs> She, she kind of. If you don't know who she is, you kind of do know who she is. She was a kind of a teenager in Demons. Uh, she's very synonymous with the film Deep Red, and uh, here she's playing a uh, and Bay of Blood. Yeah, and Bay of Blood, and she's here. She's playing a little character who kind of uh, moves the Florindo Balkan character into a uh, another path in a way. Mm-hmm. She's almost mm-hmm. like a catalyst for the next path of her kind of evolution in the story. So let's kind of get into it a little bit. Uh, this it's an interesting concept because you know she's talking about this film, so it's it's kind of a it, it, it's kind of it's not breaking the fourth wall. It's just kind of a prescient thing. It's kind of a a film about a film yeah. Uh, yeah. in a weird way. Uh, but she, you know, Balkan. She one one thing you can say about Florinda Balkan. She always seems very game for whatever she's in. She's yeah yeah. She yeah, yeah. she pretty much goes full tilt. She's kind of an unusual beauty. Um, I wouldn't say in this film she's drop dead gorgeous. Uh, I've seen her in other films, and we've talked about her on this show before, where she really is very striking. In this, she kind of feels like you know somebody's mom or somebody's right. you know like a woman going through a midlife crisis in some way. Well, I think that you know, for for an actress who I I've always kind of categorized her as being almost having a feral sort of quality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in many of her roles, I think that, you know, she really, I think, feels at, at ease here in this sort of cool clinical sort of persona that she gets. And, you know, I also applaud uh, that she does manage, I think, to uh, to carry the film mostly on her own. Oh, yeah. Uh, since this is such an interior role mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the time she she really hasn't got anyone to play off of, mm-hmm. um, and which I also found, you know, interesting that they really don't play up her, her innate sort of uh, sex appeal in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is not like a sexy Florinda no. Balkan sort of role. No, this is not even. A, I would argue this is not even a sexy movie in any way, shape, or form. This is even though it has sex in it. It's, it yeah, does. No, it's not. It, but I never felt titillated or even no. excited in any way, shape, no. or form. No, it, no, no. Yeah, it just feels like a uh, a character study. Yes. And uh, even though, like you said, there is a sex scene in it, I mean, I hardly even remember the sex scene that's in it. Right. Uh, matter of fact, I totally forgot about it until you said it again. But it's it's that unmemorable, and uh, I, I think that's a that might. 
I don't know if that's a testimony or or a deterrent to the movie. Uh, obviously, Italian film film is kind of known for its exploitive elements and the fact right. that it would work these things into its movies: uh, gore, uh, nudity, um, animal cruelty. I mean, you, I mean that's a, that's a weird one, but I mean you got to think about you know Italian cinema. That's what they did. They they just would exploit every last aspect of anything you could exploit and they would try to put it on on screen and here all they're really exploiting is honestly locations uh and not much else although i do think that the astronaut stuff that's in here is disturbing uh and klaus kinski's given a credit here but i don't remember klaus kinski in this movie outside of the five seconds he's in the beginning he pop, well, he pops up here and there, but it's all it's always in in regards to being in the uh, the, the, the film the film yeah. sequences. Yeah, he's he's Doctor Blackman, and I hardly remember him even watching it again this time. Like I can remember him at the beginning of the film, but I don't remember him hardly ever throughout. He must be really quick snippets, but yeah, yeah, it's only a couple of uh, shots here. Talk there. about a talk about a uh, film credit. You know, uh, he, he is so unkinsky esque in this. It's yeah. really kind of. Funny. Yeah, his hair's combed, and he's yeah, uh, right. <laughs> and he's only—he he almost looks human. I bet he has less than a minute of screen time. I bet he I has agree. less than thirty seconds of screen time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I wonder how much he got paid for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, he because obviously he draw his name is a draw, and it was a draw in Italian cinema. But Florinda Balkin, known for things, uh, well, we we talked about her Machine Gun McCain. I believe you were on that episode, weren't you? Uh, no. You were not on that one? Hmm. I had to miss that one. Oh, okay. I thought you were on that one. I don't know why I thought that. Uh must have been me and Will then. It's it's been a, it's been it's it's all blurred together now at this point. These uh <laughs> these hosts of these shows. So uh, many years. That was one of her early films though. Um she was uh in The Damned, she's in uh Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, which I don't think we've ever covered, but we probably will at some point. Don't torture a duckling. Yeah, Lizard and Woman Skin, which we did cover. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't don't oddly don't torture a duckling. We've never covered. Uh, really? Yeah. Believe it or not, we've never covered that. Huh. Flavia the Heretic, Last House on the Beach, um, quite a bit of stuff. But after that, Last House on the Beach, it pretty much uh, she pretty much disappears because in the '80s she doesn't really do a lot of the kind of '80s uh, Italian films that you're used to seeing, which is kind of the Florida shot or the kind of post-apocalyptic. Uh, kind of 80s stuff. She didn't do any of that. I think she pretty much hung out in Italy and did like dramas and stuff like that over there. So she didn't really kind of cross over into that world of Italian cinema. She kind of she kind of was around during the 70s era of Italian cinema and then kind of, you know, just did her own thing in Italy, What's uh, so to say, so to speak, so to say, whatever I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway... Um, she is good in this film. She's actually my favorite thing about this film uh, because the film hinges so heavily on her performance and her kind of letting you know that and she's still working. It should be said she's still making stuff. She still she oh. did something in twenty nineteen. Good for she, her. Uh, she. Everything is played on her face, yeah. and that is not yeah. an easy thing for an actor to do. Um, so she has to carry. She has to do pretty much all the heavy lifting here. And it's pretty impressive, even if I, you know, I jokingly say, but I'm only half jokingly say because I do honestly believe this film is almost more of a a diorama or almost a tourist attraction type film as it is a film, uh, because 
she spends a lot of time in this movie walking around, driving around, or laying around. Right. And, you know, I see reviews for this film, and I think to myself, okay, I see what folks are saying about it, but for me, a good chunk of it is... A good chunk of it's pretty boring. I'm not going to lie. I, I think, I think it's really good, but I think it's also a, it struggles a little bit to keep its hooks in me mm-hmm. uh, throughout. Uh, I think that's I think that's a perfectly reasonable criticism because yeah, it is very sort of, um, uh, let's say languid mm-hmm. in its pacing. Yes, that's a good word. That's a good word. You like that one? Yeah, I do. I do. I didn't expect that we'd hear that word this week, but. Uh, I like it. I like it. I'm going to use it today in some fashion. I am though. more awake than normal to this morning, so. <laughs> Dropping languid on people. Uh-huh. Right? Um, yeah. Uh, so the copy I watched on YouTube, uh, it's kind of weird. It kind of flips back and forth between Italian and, and American. Yes, yes. Uh, so there are some scenes, if you watch that version, if you watch along for the show, or if you're going to watch it after you hear us talk about it this week, be prepared. There are at least three or four scenes, I think. They're in pure Italian, no subtitles. Uh, or no, shouldn't you say subtitles? I mean, they're not in English, right? So, so I mean, you just it, it's kind of weird. But I don't think it deters from the story it's telling in any way. I don't think it hurt. If it's almost, it's weird. They they look different too. It's almost like they were missing scenes that were punched back into the movie. Well, my guess, yeah, that would be my guess. Would be that they, that's like a more complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, version of the movie i don't know if they add anything or not because i don't know what they were saying but i don't feel well like... if you if you if you turn on your your yeah, yeah. your uh closed captions for like the whole thing then you'll see all that they're saying oh okay because yeah. they, they are the, the captions are in english i always forget to turn that uh youtube will do will do captions sometimes so i'm so used to watching foreign films on youtube with no captions <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that i forget sometimes that you can actually turn it on and it'll actually pick it up that I forget that YouTube is actually more sophisticated than I remember it being. Uh, but it, it's interesting. Uh, there's, Like I said, there's familiar faces in this film. Uh, Italian faces that you know. Mostly, uh, I think Nicoletta Elmi uh, is the most familiar. Although I do think um, there's one other female actress in here that I feel like I've seen in something. Caterina Barato. She's the boutique owner. And I feel like I know her from something. And I don't know what it is. And I'm trying to click on her here on IMDb, but I, I can't think of what I know her from, but she's very striking. Um, wow. She lived a long life. She lived to be 95 years old. Um, I'm looking through her filmography. I know this is not exciting uh, podcasting right. here, but uh, just looking through just to kind of see if I, nothing's really jumping out at me. Well, she was an eight and a half. So maybe that's it, but I doubt it. Most of what I remember from eight and a half is mostly just the visuals themselves and not really the people in it. Um, anyway, I think that, you know, this journey this character goes on is interesting. I think that part of my problem is I never really know and never really understood. Sometimes, you know, there's a male character in here. I never, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm assuming he was real. Uh, if it felt unreal at times. He, I think he is. Yeah. Um, because the character is going through or is struggling to get through what she's going through. Right. Um, right. The, it plays with those kind of elements. Right. Yes. And I think watching it this time, I still don't know if the film, for me, tells the story it's trying to tell very clearly. 
right. I think it's it really struggles trying to get trying to get its thesis across in a lot of ways. Well, I think it, I think that it, yeah, no, I think that it wants to keep you off kilter. I think that that's I I, I tend to think that it's intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's why once we get to the end, um, you know, it it answers questions that it also doesn't answer. Yeah, that makes um, sense. That makes sense. If that makes yeah, uh, if that makes sense, it does. Um, I, I I don't know if watching it this time, if I wanted more from. I, so here, so this gets into that conversation we had last week when we were answering the voicemail mm-hmm. about how going back and looking at movies can sometimes alter your thoughts on it. Sure. I can remember the first time seeing this thinking, oh, it's a pretty nice kind of quiet, uh, almost jelly-esque in some ways film. Watching it this time, I got hardly any jelly-esque type thing, so I don't know why I thought that, other yeah. than Florinda Balkan being in it yes, and it being Italian. That'd probably be the only thing. Uh, because this is more, in theory... This is more, not in theory, I think in practice, actually. I think in theory, it wants to be a little bit more of a horror film, but I think in practice, it's a straight-up drama character it's, study. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a character study. I, I don't I don't know that I would consider this Giallo at all. Uh, it's much more psycho-thriller or Giallo-adjacent. Yeah. Because it's, it's, much more, uh, it's much more subtle and much more haunting mm-hmm. uh, than Giallo. It's, it's, it, you know, it doesn't have the Black Love Killer. It doesn't have a stream of people getting killed in fact i believe there's one yes murder maybe in the entire movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh if we don't in- if we don't uh, include the uh the person on the moon um so yeah i mean i i i definitely don't consider it giallo uh and i i completely agree with you um on its uh, on its being much more you know melodramatic yeah uh although you know i, I would also kind of suggest that if you really really wanted to uh you can call this a sort of uh werewolf film hmm. uh between the uh, the moon imagery and the the duality of of the alice and nicole sort of thing going on there yeah and the uh, when the the nicoletta elmy character you know shows up and naturally knows the truth uh and she even says that yeah uh, that nicole looks different from alice yeah uh, you know, and you know, then the the Elmi character, you know, fits in with the whole idea of you, you know, youth and innocence, you know, which leads to the truth. You know, even though she doesn't know all of it herself, and you know, I I, I got to say here, uh, in regards to Elmi, is that I, I've always found it kind of odd how often adult characters in movies uh, trust in and follow children <laughs> yeah. uh, to uncover secrets and so on. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are reasons why this trope has persisted. Yeah, uh, but I, for the life of me. Uh, can't uh, can't figure can't figure that one out I, all I th- the way. I think it might it might fall back to us kind of waning for our, or kind of pining for our youth, and that the it seems like I think that you know nostalgia looking back on when you were young you feel like you could see things in a different light which obviously well, you do. Yeah, but I also think that it's it's because you know children really kind of can't help but be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're blunt. Uh, yeah. Which is also something I think we we lose as we get older. Um, right, right, right. We and that's good and bad, right? I mean, kids can be especially cruel, but they can yes. also be especially honest. Yes, and okay. uh, kind of see the world for what it really is, um, which is both fascinating and 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 kind of scary. <laughs> but I think you know, I th- honestly, I do believe that you know, adults look to kids 
to find answers for things that adults don't understand anymore because they've forgotten. They've forgotten the sense of wonder sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kids can kind of look at something in a totally different light. And uh, I think that's that, I think that's kind of persistent here because, and I think it's persistent in a lot of Italian cinema actually because they tend to see the supernatural, whereas I think the adults are always trying to kind of get away from the supernatural or you could argue, you know, if you grow up, you don't believe in ghosts anymore because you're a grown up. Um, but if you're a kid, you don't know. You don't know any better. Maybe maybe there's something there. I don't know. I, I agree with you, though. I do find it always kind of baffling because I got to be honest with you. If I'm in a serious situation, I'm not going to be looking to a kid for any advice. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to be like, hey, man, how do we figure this out? And the kid says, well, maybe we should build a Lego set. I'm like, wait a minute. Now. <laughs> you've, you've hit on it. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. As much fun as that would be, the world's about to end. We got to figure this out. Um, I, 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 I think that this film, I think it's an interesting curiosity piece. I don't think it's a great movie. I, I've seen other Luigi Bugzoni films that I think I like more. Okay. Uh, I think he's a good filmmaker, a solid filmmaker. Um, there's an uncredited uh, role by Mario Finelli here. I, I think he was the writer as well. Um, he, he's pretty, I, I don't know. If, I guess for me, Bugzoni kind of starts with, you know, I like his spaghetti Western, a man pride and vengeance. I like that one. And then, uh, I think we've done the fifth chord on the show, right? Uh, yes. And I enjoyed that one. Uh, this one's a little different. See, I didn't like that one. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. I didn't love it, but I enjoyed it. I think Will was the big fan of that one. I think he likes that one quite a bit. Or maybe it was, maybe he wasn't, maybe again, maybe he wasn't on the show then. Who knows at this point? I can't even remember who was on what podcast and I run the damn thing and I don't even know anymore. I don't know where I'm at right now. I haven't seen his uh, first film, which is The Possessed, but I've always wanted to. Uh, It's a, it's a basically a uh, kind of a mystery kind of noir thing. Right. And no, I, I haven't seen that either. I'd like to see that. But he didn't direct a whole lot of movies. He only did uh, no, this. No. Uh, the Possessed, uh, Fifth Chord, Man, Pride, and Vengeance, Brothers Blue, which I don't even know what that is. And uh, that's about it. And then he did some documentary stuff, and then he just kind of disappeared. Brothers mm-hmm. Blue, it stars Jack Palance. A group of young desperados is hunted for several years by a determined bank guard. Wow. I've never seen this movie. We should check that out. So it says it's a very graphic Bonnie and Clyde type film. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Jack, Bass. it's a <laughs> interesting, me interested. Yeah. Yeah. Interested. Um, but, I, but I think that for me, I mean, the, that's the one thing I keep coming back from is the movie. So I agree with you. I like the kind of the werewolf element you kind of bring to it because of the moon and everything else, because there are moments right. in the movie when, but uh, Balkan's character looks different. Sometimes she's got short hair. Sometimes she's got long hair. Uh, sometimes she looks disheveled. Sometimes she looks uh, goddess-like. Um, so there's these elements messing around. And this is one of those kind of movies, too, where you kind of can't do anything else but watch the movie. Because if you don't... You're going to miss something. You're going to miss everything. I honestly well, think, yeah. I think... I think if you bow out of this... And then look back up, you know, five minutes or a couple minutes later and stuff. You're you're you've probably lost some element of the story uh, because it is so insular. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I struggled with some of that. I, I mean, I could recommend it to folks who love Italian films and, you know, Florinda Balkan. And, but I couldn't, like, recommend it to people who say, you know, I want to see a good Koskinski film. I've heard about Footprints on the Moon. Is that a good one? I'm like, well, no, it's, it's not. No. <laughs> it's not a Koskinski movie at all. No. I said, what it is is, uh, you know, it's uh, basically a, a just a character study of this woman who is going through so much. But I, that's the other problem is that I don't know if I ever really feel like I understood what she's going through. Uh, right, 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 right. She just either she's losing her mind, which is what I think it was, or somebody has harmed her in some way, but nothing's ever said. And I don't feel like she would fall into bed with another man if somebody had harmed her, if another male character had harmed her. So it's a little confusing in that way. And I got to say, that's how I left this movie. I left this movie still feeling confused. Okay. And uh, I liked it, but certainly didn't love it. Okay. Uh, well, I, on the other hand, am in the love category on this one. Okay. Um, so, but uh, listen, I completely, I completely uh get all of your criticism on it and i agree that it, you know it is a very slow paced uh, sort of movie and it is certainly um let's let's say labyrinthine yeah or labyrinthine and it's uh well that's what's convolutions that's what's kind of odd though because usually you know me i like those kind right. of films sure yeah oh yeah 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 and i was kind of i was kind of hoping for the same here you let yeah. me down no no, <laughs> no. Uh, but down. anyway uh uh one of the I think this movie has one of the most striking openings uh, of anything that's approaching uh, a giallo. And I, I think that it does, yeah, it does. three things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives us a mystery to unravel. Uh, it instigates these feelings of uh, isolation and paranoia that are going to run throughout the entire movie. Uh, and it sets us up for the concept of the uh, the unreliable narrator uh, in, uh, in Balkan's character. Uh, and I think that this comes into focus then you know when she realizes that she's lost three days uh and you know things are are just you know they're not what they seem uh, and we're going to need to reevaluate things as the film progresses and like every every minute of the movie we have to reevaluate something else um i like that the uh you know in well i should say falling in line with gialli which i still just don't 100 percent agree that this is uh the movie is set uh, at least at first in a very modern european world uh, and it features, you know, a lead character who is an artist or a creative in some capacity. Uh, well, she's, I mean, she's a translator, but, you know, the point remains since, you know, she, she works with language. Uh, and we generally tend to think, well, us stupid Americans uh, generally think of uh, multilingual people as smarter than average. Um, so I'll, I'll allow for that here. Uh, but I, I find that interesting that the, the world all around her in the city, all around the, the Balkan character in the city, is hard edges and steel and glass and this, you know, white sterility uh, going on. And it's it's really a wide uh, difference between there and then the the foresty area uh, where the uh, the hotel Garma is. Uh, and I find it interesting also that you know both urban and more um, uh, uh, bucolic worlds in the film serve to isolate Alice, uh, both physically and mentally. Um, so, uh, I really absolutely adore, uh, the use of black and white for the, uh, the flashbacks that, uh, Bazzoni throws in here because he's linking up like, you know, like quote unquote, true memories with dreams, with movies themselves, because I think that like Alice, um, we're going to have a hard time telling fantasy from reality. Uh, and you know, this is why I think that it's not 
an accident uh, that uh, that her character is named Alice. Um, I think the film is very much her journey, like through the looking glass, so to speak, uh, where everything is upside down, and eventually you kind of have to go nuts in order to uh, survive. Uh, and that's the angle that I take on this movie. Mm, mm. Um, you know, I, I love that uh, that Balkan allows herself. Well, the Balkan character allows herself to become Nicole in order to find out uh, what's going on, but she also doesn't like what she sees uh, the first time that she puts on that uh, that wig. Uh, because I think that you know the movie is really this kind of constant push and pull uh, with herself, and um, that's that's the draw to me. Uh, and I, I, I get I get where you're coming from when you say that a lot of it is is just sort of sort of her kind of meandering around. Uh, but I think that it's also because, and and you kind of you kind of uh, mentioned this as well, is that so much of the movie is centered on just the looks that she gives. And it's so interior uh, that I think that, you know, it kind of to distract away from that, I think, is to uh, kind of distract away from the point. And the point is what's going on in her head, I think, at the end of the day, because, you know, of course, one of the big problems with stories that I think that uh, have premises like this one does uh, is that, uh, you know, there's... um, there's no real solution that I think will ever totally satisfy everybody. Uh, you know, any explanation that we get is going to be either so mundane uh, that it doesn't feel original enough, or it's going to be so ludicrous that it negates any of the emotions that we've wrapped up in this thing. Um, and, you know, I think one of those two things happens here as well. Uh, though I would also argue that, you know, between Batsoni and Balkan, uh, the sting of the disappointment is at least a little bit reduced because I think the film kind of both answers and doesn't answer its questions, or at least not directly. Uh, and for me, I find it you know pretty slick in that way um, because you do kind of get a wild ending. And I think that the, the coda that we get at the, uh, the end of this thing doesn't really work for me either in much the same way that you know when we were talking about Nightmare Alley last week, um, you know, I, I really don't like how they, they throw him, uh, you know, a, a line at the end. I really don't like how they try to, you know, actually give us a, you know, a little bit of a, an explanation here. Yeah. Um, yeah. because I, 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 you know, I like, I like the murkiness of it. And I think that, uh, it, it's really, it, the, the movie is really intended to be, I think just an exploration, uh, of this woman's psyche and i think that you know i think it's a lot more slick than we expect out of italian cinema or at least italian genre cinema which this gets lumped in with and i don't know 100 percent that this is like a genre movie um and we and, you know we've had, we've had this discussion already but uh but suffice it to say you know i think that uh i i i well, I definitely love this movie, uh, and yeah, I, I definitely love this movie more than you do, um, and fair play on that. Uh, but I also think that uh, to say more than than we're we've kind of touched on here, I think, is to kind of give away uh, some of what the film has to offer that's special. Uh, and I think that it's going to be it's and as we've kind of uh, as we kind of covered here, it's going to be individual. Uh, to uh, to the viewer at the end yeah. of the day, and yeah. certainly in regards to this movie, um, 
but that's uh yeah man that's that's pretty much all you can you can say without giving away the entire yeah the entirety of this well that's the interesting thing about it i do i do i do feel like it's one of those ones where i'm just like this is really is one of those films where you it comes down to the individual it it absolutely does and and for me i mean like i said i think it has a lot to reward the viewer uh i get that you you know kind of couldn't quite uh get there maybe yeah uh, or or did maybe maybe the path was just muddied for you i yeah. don't know yeah yeah um well, but just... uh, but for me I, I yeah no i i dig this one a hell of a lot but yeah i i i completely agree with you uh when you say that it's not for the casual uh not for the casual viewer no at all no 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 at some point uh i think my wife was watching it with me for a little while and she was like what in the hell are you watching <laughs> <laughs> and not in the way that you know it's like it's some scene of violence or some she watched some of sweet home with me too and she's like you watch the strangest shit that's what she said yeah, right uh but with this she's just like what are you watching what are you watching <laughs> <laughs> I'm like okay, well i'm pretty sure this woman's walking around and she's losing her mind and she's obsessed with this film she saw or or is she or is she and she's like oh why waste time with stuff like that i'm like well <laughs> i understand because it was assigned to yeah. me yeah 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 but you know then again i can make that same argument for another film that somebody else doesn't like so that's sure. that's what i think this this movie is i think it's it's certainly down to the person um, uh, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. some folks that listen to the show are big fans of this. Probably gonna be a little disappointed that I didn't like it as much as they do, but they will probably be enlightened and happy that you liked it as much as they do. So, um, my make or break is definitely the opening. Uh, it is yeah. striking and unforgettable, honestly, in a movie that I don't think the movie's forgettable in any way, shape, or form. I should say that I think it's the movie definitely has value. I just don't know if I got it this uh time watching it i think it's something i'd probably revisit at some point mm -hmm. to see but maybe it's just one of those movies that's just not going to speak to me i don't know um it's possible hey? yeah it happens M man yeah it does uh mvt for me is uh balkan i think she's regardless of my thoughts on the movie she does a lot of the heavy lifting here and she does a fantastic job i think of uh, carrying this film mm -hmm. and um it's a really good performance it's subtle and but it's it's primal when it needs to be, uh, but she never really goes full, uh, you know, crazy in this. Not in my opinion, she doesn't. She kind of keeps it. No, she absolutely doesn't. She under. keeps it very grounded. Yeah, and she knows she's got something going on, and she yeah. she keeps it relatively. Uh, it's like her character doesn't want attention, doesn't want the attention that that will bring. Right. Uh, my score for the film, I'm gonna go six point five out of ten. I, I, I liked it. Um, didn't love it. Uh, it, it just felt like it hung around a little too much for me. Um, thriller is not the word I would use. Mystery, it certainly is. Yeah. With some yeah, horror yeah. elements. I don't know. Thrills are not something I got out of it. That's what I'll say. Okay, fair play. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, make or break's that opening. Uh, it's it's tough to beat that one. Uh, MVT. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Batsoni. Um, because I think that he shows a very assured hand uh, and he shows actually a great deal of, I think, restraint. Uh, and I think that he actually does manage to keep the film, you know, mostly on the rails and, 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 uh, kind of moving along. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I mean, I do think it has pacing issues. I don't think they're as, uh, as, as, uh, bad as, uh, as you take them to be. Uh, but fair play uh, uh, on that. And score for me, um, I am going to go 
eight on this one. Wow. Uh, wow. So, yeah. Nice. Blew that point five. Uh, yeah. Gap out of the water. That whole the, that whole theory's gone. <laughs> That's that. Well, yeah. well no, Can't I didn't rely it, on that anymore. Hey, look, it happens sometimes, you know. Some people yeah. are Luigi Bazzoni. Some people are Rob Zombie. I mean, what are you going to yeah, do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> yeah, he's like uh, some scat rapping there. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <laughs> I would probably like him better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it, yeah, you can agree with the word scat when it comes to Rob Zombie for you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, that's the big show this week. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed. Kind of flipped it on you guys. Uh, there's a reason. Um, but uh, we do hope you enjoy. What are we doing uh, next week? Oh, my voice broke there. Did you hear that? <laughs> there you go, Peter Brady. <laughs> and it's time to change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, we, what do you got uh, picked next week there, Todd? <laughs> I picked, uh, what the hell did I pick? Oh, uh, I married a monster from outer space. Yes. Uh, 1958. Yeah, going back in time again. Going back in time yeah good stuff that'll be fun to talk about that's a uh, mm. uh, more of that 50 sci-fi indeed that we love to talk about so i'm gonna pick a big one and uh basically i'm just picking this so i have a reason to watch the 4k blu-ray i have <laughs> uh i've only seen the film twice uh i i don't know remember enough about it to comment on it at all right now so i was like well i'm gonna just pick this for the show so i'm picking uh david lynch's dune mm. um so we will be talking about that so that was shot on film. Yeah, that was shot on film, uh, and it's a movie. But we'll it's see. Movie. We'll see what happens. We'll see how I feel about it. I I I I know how I felt about it the last time I watched it. So we'll see how I feel about it this time. I think Todd's Todd's playing his hand a little bit there. So, <laughs> but then again, Todd could be fooling. Am I? You could. You could be fooling. You could be thinking. Yeah, you could be playing me too, saying, "Man, I love this movie." because dune does have its uh it has its fans uh there's there's definitely no doubt about it and it's become a cult movie over the years uh for numerous reasons um certainly uh it stands out in david lynch's filmography so it's it's kind of it's kind of fun to kind of talk about that kind of stuff the same way we do with cronenberg's fast company it's kind of fun to you know david lynch tried to go hollywood and did he succeed or did he fail well we'll we'll talk about that we will talk about this. Uh, that's about it. Uh, I don't have anything else. I think with that, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 